This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of August 24th, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 240 of Defender Radio. We're taking you into the world of animal law on this episode, featuring two major cases in the United States whose outcomes could very well change wildlife policy across the country. The Wild Earth Guardians are celebrating a victory in appeals court from earlier this month, which will allow their legal action against the notorious Wildlife Service Program of the USDA to move forward. And in the eastern U.S., the Wildlife Alliance of Maine, along with two partner organizations, is pushing a federal judge to halt the state's trapping season to protect the endangered Canada lynx. Both of these cases could play major roles in preventing the needless slaughter of millions of fur bears in the United States, and even influence future policy in Canada and abroad. So let's get started. In 2014, the Wildlife Service Program killed over 4 million animals, with virtually no oversight or modern scientific review. The Wild Earth Guardians are one of many groups who have opposed this program, and their years-old legal action is finally moving forward after an appeals judge agreed with their belief that the program is causing harm to the environment and conservationists. To explain why this decision is significant, and what the basis for the legal action is, we were joined by Bethany Cotton, Wildlife Program Director for the Wild Earth Guardians. Can you explain a bit for the audience um, what the Department of Agriculture, like I, I've done so much reading on this, I forget how complex it is sometimes, but the wildlife services are the people really being targeted through your legal action, um, and it, 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 they're the group that many other groups also target. Um, so can you explain who the wildlife services are and what they do uh, for people? Sure. So it's it's slightly confusing, and that's likely intentional. Uh, but the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Animal Plant Health Inspection Service uh, has a program. It's not even an agency called Wildlife Services, and it used to be called Animal Damage Control, which was much more honest name for the program. And uh, several years back, likely in an effort to try to obfuscate exactly how bad this program is. Um, they changed the name to Wildlife Services, and it creates quite a bit of confusion because our uh, federal agency that is in charge of conserving imperiled species is called the Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, so there's this kind of confusion between the two terms. But Wildlife Services itself is a program that uh, for the most part, spends all of its time killing animals. And, and last year in the United States, uh, they admitted to killing over 4 million animals. And we think that that number is much higher. There is a lot of non-target killing that goes unreported. Um, and and to more than 2 million of those animals were native species uh, on the landscape. And they use all sorts of barbaric uh, mechanisms to do that killing, including aerial gunning, uh, indiscriminate use of poisons across the landscape. Their particular favorite are 
M44s, which are sodium cyanide ejector capsules, uh, and those are normally or primarily targeted coyotes, but they actually can't specifically target a species. So companion animals and even a few people have been injured. Um, lots of companion animals have been killed. Um, and lots of non-target animals have been killed. Um, and then they also use traps across the landscape um, and various kinds of traps. So lake holds, conibear, um, several different types of nasty traps. Um, just all, all across the country, although there's a real concentration in the West. Um, and I, I guess we should explore, I think it's pretty obvious since it's the U.S. Department of Agriculture, but why does Wildlife Services, uh, this program, have such, I don't even know how to describe it, but just sort of blanket approval to go out and cause such mass genocide against Native uh, wildlife? Well, the, the purported justification is that they are out there protecting agricultural interests, um, so crops and livestock um, primarily, although uh, we are fundamentally challenging that premise. So we're certainly challenging the, the tools they use, the tools of cruelty on the landscape. But we're also saying, hold on, you need to take a step back and see whether this is actually a scientifically viable way to address these purported problems. So for example, the, often what is cited is they're saying there's too many coyotes on the landscape and they are uh, imperiling, for example, livestock. Uh, first of all, Coyotes very seldom go after livestock. So they're only really vulnerable when you're talking about babies, young sheep or cows. Uh, but totally aside from that, um, the, the latest science is quite clear that the biological response to an indiscriminate killing of coyotes is for the coyotes to then reproduce at significantly higher rates. So normally with, with coyotes, it's just um, the term alpha is a little out of style now, but for folks who are familiar, an alpha female and alpha male, those, that one female is the only female in the pack that will reproduce and at a rate that is sustainable on the landscape. But if you go out and kill a bunch of coyotes, then several more females will come into heat, several more will then um, reproduce, and all of a sudden you actually have more coyotes uh, as a result. So it's the ag absolute opposite result of what they're claiming they're going after. Um, and we've asked them to take a look at that science and go back and actually evaluate the efficacy of their entire program. And government bureaucracies love hearing from us in the nonprofit sector, I know. <laughs> um, and that, I guess, brings us to the... Um, the lawsuit or the legal action, um, can you uh, describe what, what's going on? I mean, the the uh, news release that you've issued says that the program can't hide behind 20-year-old analysis um, right. and that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has sort of ruled in your favor. So what's what's the status of this legal action and what's the, the basis of it? Sure. So now, several years ago, we brought a challenge in the state of Nevada uh, of wildlife services programs in that state and uh, the, their failure to do adequate analysis. So in the United States, there's this law called the National Environmental Policy Act, and it is purely procedural, meaning that all it requires is that, that 
agencies go through an analysis of their actions and that they be aware of the environmental impacts of those actions and that that process be public so that the public can engage and can ensure that the government has all the relevant information before it. And what we've alleged in the lawsuit was that they did not do an appropriate analysis and that the little analysis they did um, relied entirely on this analysis they did in 1994. So in 1994, I was maybe just starting high school. I mean, it gives you an idea of how old it was, right? And um, and it, they've made a couple changes to that analysis in 1997, but they didn't update the science. So um, that programmatic, what's called an environmental impact statement, is what the uh, what the government wants to continue to rely on. And that analysis itself looks at science from the 1970s and the 1980s, much of which is disproven. by uh, there were a lot of assumptions back then um, about carnivores on the landscape and that they were just bad. Um, and we didn't understand things like trophic cascades and the benefit of having uh, carnivores across the landscape and how important they are to healthy functioning ecosystems. So we said you you can't go and kill all these animals without doing uh, a modern analysis using the current science. And unfortunately at the district court level in Montana, the wildlife services said and, and the state of Nevada tried to help them with this, well if we don't do it then the state will step into our shoes and therefore you have no remedy at law. The court can't do anything to redress your injury, to, to solve the problem. And we argued against that in part because the poison that uh, the state is using, part of what Nevada is doing is poisoning a lot of raisins. And they're using a poison that is so toxic that only federal programs and agencies can get a permit to use it. So the state of Nevada cannot step into their shoes. Uh, and they also, officials from the state affirmatively said they couldn't afford to anyway because the federal government pays for a lot of this activity. So we said, well, we don't think that's true. And uh, unfortunately, the district court agreed with um, the program at that level. And we took that to, uh, up on appeal to the Ninth Court of Appeals. And the court just decided and said, no, that's, it's not true. That was incorrect. Um, the assumption that the state could fill those shoes is incorrect. And regardless, even if you're being injured by two different people or two different entities, it doesn't mean you can't challenge one and then perhaps challenge the other. Um, and they said, we were clearly injured by these activities and we do have a right to address those injuries in court. Um, and so it's, it's really a procedural victory, but it's very important because we were seeing this trend in the various states where this, these programs are occurring and we are challenging activities in Idaho and activities in Washington as well as Nevada, where these state programs were just putting a letter in the record that said, well, we would just do it if Wildlife Services didn't, and therefore Wildlife Services is immune from ever having the courts review their activities. Um, so it has a much broader impact than just our one case. And so now, 
three years later, we get to go back and actually move forward with our challenge in Nevada. And what will that entail? I mean, is this one of these lawyers huddled over briefcases, things that you can't talk about? Or is there sort of a very straightforward, this is why we say it's not right, and this is what we expect to be done about it? Oh, sure. There's no secret um, about the theory of the case. I mean, we'll go forward with the full briefing and argue the case, and and it really is those things I I described that uh, it's unacceptable to rely on this very, very old science, and you can't continue to do that in perpetuity, that that analysis from uh, more than, you know, 21 years ago now um, cannot insulate you from looking at the much more current science. And another example of that, that Nevada keeps saying, well, we're actually trying to protect imperiled species. We're killing ravens and coyotes because they imperil sage grouse. And what we've said is, well, hold on, look at the bigger picture. It's true that there is some predation on sage grouse by uh, raptors and, and by larger birds, but what sage grouse need to survive that and prevent too, too much of it is um, grass and sagebrush um, that is at least seven inches high. And the biggest issue about why that isn't the case and why there is a real problem is that uh, across the Western United States, states allow grazing um, by livestock to take that what's called stubble height, so the amount of, of cover of native plants cover that the grouse need to protect their nest, uh, especially during the rearing season in the spring, is seven inches. And so if if we don't see the states have that be a requirement, that the grazing isn't so heavy that it doesn't maintain at least seven inches uh, of this plant life, then that's really the threat. Um, and it, it's really sort of like treating a bullet wound with a Band-Aid to uh, go in and kill a bunch of ravens because you've really destroyed the habitat um, and the sage crops are really vulnerable. So it's the same thing with coyotes and, and we've just said to them, hold on, we need to look at this in a uh, much more broader ecosystem-based approach and think about things a little more carefully and that killing these animals is really not the answer. Well, and that's something I've definitely been hearing from a lot of ecologists that I've interviewed in the last several weeks alone, um, mm-hmm. is this whole, you have to take more time before you make any decision about removal or addition to an ecosystem, because even with our advanced computers and our understanding of the science, it is still so incredibly difficult and sometimes impossible to truly predict what will happen to an ecosystem when you start changing it. Absolutely. Uh, now, why is the program so reticent to, to say, you know what, there is new science, we should look at what we're doing? Like, it, to me, it seems obvious, but why would this, this federally funded program not want to do that? Well, Wildlife Services isn't exactly populated by a lot of ecologists and scientists. It, it really is a lot of professional trappers um, and hunters. It's folks, I and mean, we've seen... Obviously, this isn't true of all the folks that work for them, but there are pictures of Jamie Olson, who's a wildlife services um, employee who um, perpetuated just absolutely horrific cruelty on animals. He posted photographs of him sticking dogs on trapped coyotes, you know, they, with the coyotes still in the traps, and then him, 
uh, letting his dogs rip these animals apart. I mean, there is there is a degree of institutionalized cruelty that is part of this program, and he has never faced consequences for that. Um, the the program made excuses for him, and um, we've been told by former employees who are now whistleblowers and who now serve as experts in our cases and in other conservation efforts um, that the statistics should be the assumption that for every animal reported trapped, at, at least one more. I mean, that's just accepted. At least one more was trapped and thrown away, and then it may be um, orders of magnitude larger than that. And so there is there's a very serious refusal, institutionalized refusal, to look at the science and and there's a lot of habit, and um, they're also just not used to it being subject to analysis. They operated in the shadows for a very long time, and until fairly recently, like the last decade, barely anyone knew they even existed, that this program was out there doing this thing, and there's been quite a bit of work to daylight those, those activities and um, to call for analysis, and there have been efforts in Congress um, to defund the program, to really try to reform it. And unfortunately, the agricultural interests, though they are absolutely a very small minority voice, they are a very loud minority voice, and they are a very moneyed minority voice. And so there is a problem um, where Wildlife Services actually did get defunded, and then the next day a rider got attached to a new bill to refund the program uh, several years ago. So it's disheartening, um, but we do think that the more people are aware of this program and the more people are aware of the importance of these various animals and how ecosystems function uh, across the board. I mean, the, the best example really is restoring wolves to Yellowstone where the Park Service and Fish and Wildlife Service and the public and um, scientists all agreed that the park would never be whole without wolves, that they were an integral part of the ecosystem, and that removing them uh, had been a huge mistake. Uh, and But even with all of the analysis that was done for that, folks thought, yeah, the scientists thought, yes, it'll, it'll positively impact the ecosystem, and it'll be good for some other species, and it'll be good to control the elk herds and the that are really overpopulated and that are damaging their riparian areas. But no one, not a single scientist, predicted that wolves would actually help the grizzly bears in the park. Um, because nobody really thought that another carnivore would help another carnivore. And it turns out that it's been extremely helpful to help recover grizzly bears to help wolves on the landscape because the wolves will go and, and kill an animal and then the bears come in and sort of steal that carcass. And um, and so the, the amount of meat that bears have had access to has increased and it's really helped. And so we just don't know all the time, even when we the folks whose job it is to think about it the most um, don't always predict all the benefits. And the flip side is they don't always predict all the bad things that could happen if you're if you're removing animals from a landscape. Yeah, it's it it's truly incredible to see, um, and it is the from trophic cascading to the butterfly effect, all of these different mm -hmm. things that come into play, um, and it makes me feel much much better about my decision to become a writer professionally. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, now, we, we are based in Canada, but we have a lot of listeners down in the U.S. Uh, we've got mm-hmm. people internationally. What can people be doing to help in this case? And, and in many of these other uh, uh, big uh, legal cases happening in the United States, uh, what can people do to try and make a positive difference to move things forward? Sure. Well, uh, we often have actual alerts on our website. If you're not on the listserv, it's totally fine. You can find them on the website and you can take action. You don't have to join. You certainly don't have to donate or anything like that. Although, of course, we always appreciate it. Um, so there's often live action alerts on the website. It's just wildearthguardians.org. Um, other organizations are working on it. Um, you know, in terms of the litigation, that obviously is expensive for us, and we don't uh, recover any fees or anything until we prevail. Uh, so that's something that is always helpful to have support um, to do that. But I think the, the single most important thing that folks can do is ask their elected officials, are you aware of this program? Do you know that my taxpayer dollars are going to kill Native wildlife? What are you doing about it? Because um, we do find that even uh, fairly experienced senators and Congress people are not even aware. Uh, and so go to your constituent meetings. A lot of these folks are home in August and in their local districts and write letters and make phone calls. A lot of them have people whose job it is just to answer their phone and take comments from the public. And it, it really does uh, make a difference to, to raise those issues. But if, if you've got a little time to go meet with those officials, I mean, we've been calling for the defunding of this program for a long time. Uh, and we've got a pretty dysfunctional Congress, as I think folks know, even in Canada. <laughs> the, the state is not not functioning very well these days. But uh, it is. it seems like when we're talking about even even fiscal conservatives should realize that spending this money um, on such a barbaric set of activities uh, is not a good use of our public funds. So check out the website, um, read about the issue, encourage your local newspapers and media outlets to cover the issue uh, and think about it. Um, it there have been local communities who have banned wildlife services. So, for example, there are counties in California who ended their contracts, um, and there's efforts in other states and other localities to do that or have required the contract to say that only non-lethal means can be used. Um, so those things, that progress is slow, but it's wonderful. And um, we've seen the banning of coyote killing contracts, um, in California, and we've seen significant improvements in trapping regulations in Montana recently, and efforts in New Mexico to ban trapping on public lands. Um, so I think it's, it's really important that folks engage, and it's also important that people know, because I think our, our biggest hurdle initially is that people are just unaware that there is so much trapping and killing still occurring in this country that it is not a historical relic. Um, and that it's an international market that's driving a lot of this. It's not a traditional hobby situation um, that we're seeing occur. Um, And it's really time that we end it. To learn more about the Wild Earth Guardians and their legal action, visit wildearthguardians.org. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in. 
destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Beaver dams help clean water, promote songbird diversity, encourage fish populations, and create better soil and a cleaner environment. Beavers are good for Canada, but will we be good to them? Find out more at FurBearerDefenders.com and give a damn about beavers. This is Defender Radio. It's not possible for the Canada lynx to be protected properly if the state of Maine allows trapping in their territory. And wildlife protection groups are willing to go to court over it. Among them is the Wildlife Alliance of Maine, who claim that changes must be made to the state's trapping program if the lynx is to survive, let alone thrive. Exploring this in-depth issue with us is Daryl DeJoy, Executive Director of the Wildlife Alliance of Maine. Could you tell us a little bit about Maine, wildlife in Maine? Uh, Maine is one of those places I think we all see on TV and we've read in poetry, but I don't think a lot of people actually spend time uh, in Maine who aren't from Maine necessarily. So what what is the world of Maine like? Well, Maine is a very, very rural place, um, often socio-politically uh, split uh, sort of down the middle of the state. Um, it's 80, 80 to 85% wooded, although the woods that used to be are no longer the woods that are. Um, Maine is largely commercial forest land, largely owned by paper companies and woodcutting companies which really make the forests more like tree plantations. Um, this, this complicates things for wildlife habitat, for wildlife in general, and, and that's why uh, Wildlife Alliance of Maine is in existence. Yeah, and that sounds uh, very much like portions of our uh, uh, British Columbia or Alberta that are, you know, they, they're very rural and exist either as agricultural land or as resource extraction zones, uh, which is always unfortunate. Now, uh, let's talk a bit about this this lawsuit, the lawsuit that has brought us together today. Um, this is something that we see much more frequently in the United States than we see in Canada. Um, and, and my understanding is that Maine has a fur trapping season, but it is also one of the few places where the Canada lynx is prevalent. Um, so how do those two things match up and why is it uh, an issue? Well, it is really the only place, 
on the east coast of the United States that there is a uh, lynx population of any size at all. Uh, they are starting to see them in, in small numbers in Vermont, but Maine does have a breeding population of estimated by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service about 500 adult lynx. Um, they are just over the border in Quebec as well, and it's very possible that that our population is uh, uh, part of a larger contiguous population in uh, in Canada. But uh, regardless, they are here as uh, main wildlife. They were historically here. Uh, there's records that date quite far back that show lynx historically being here, and they were trapped out of existence just about. Um, they are now listed under the Endangered Species Act as a threatened species. And yet, uh, you know, in Canada, you do have fur trappers who uh, fur trap for a living. Here, that is not the case. This is recreational trapping. And the Endangered Species Act does say that protections need to be offered to the species above the, the, the human interest element of it. And um, I believe that's what we're doing here. We are uh, saying these animals are um, this tenuous population. Now, I, let me, I'm going to go back a little bit. We are currently seeing a good, good, uh, steady, and possibly even rising population of lynx right now due to um, a rise that we saw in snowshoe hare back 10 years ago or so. And lynx typically follow snowshoe hare populations, lynx populations. So um, it, it, it's, that's the, that's the look at it in a moment and that's how it looks. Uh, and our opponents are fond of saying, oh, there's more lynx in Maine than there are people. And, uh, but, but if you look at the science, if you look at what the University of Maine says, what U.S. Fish and Wildlife sees, what, what climate biologists say, um, the woods of northern Maine are going to be changing over the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years um, due to climate change, due to forestry practices. Um, and all the real science that I've seen, and I'm not saying claims by management biologists in Maine, but real science studies that have been done uh, uh, by reputable scientists, reputable graduate students at the University of Maine um, using recognized uh, techniques and being peer-reviewed uh, offer up a much more dire prediction for links over the next, as I said, 10, 15, 20, or 30 years. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I've heard that in Montana, that's also an issue right now um, that they're they're looking at with, and I believe it's also with the Canada lynx, uh, that the the changing climate is really uh, what's putting these animals in particular at risk, uh, particularly a, a, as you uh, when you share that with the constant uh, um, resource exploitation of the area. Uh, and then you throw in, and in Canada it is too. It's it's there are professional quote unquote trappers, but even they, um, it, it's it's a portion of their annual revenue 
that they get from trapping. So it's, it's still not really a full-time gig for them. Um, but when you add in this pressure from trapping, all of a sudden, uh, those numbers, and, and I see on the, uh, the uh, Portland Press Herald story, they've got a little Canada links at a, a glance thing. They've got, uh, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service estimating there are more than 500 Canada links, while the state wildlife officials put that number between 750 and 1,000. And um, uh, as you said, you know, the number is, it's still up in the air. Uh, so how are you managing with that, that problem of who says what in terms of numbers? Well, it's, it's really as simple as when you are looking at the protections of habitat, the protections of wildlife species, you owe it to the planet to take the precautionary principle. It's just that simple. If in doubt, uh, take the worst case scenario and act accordingly. Don't play fast and loose as we are with climate change. Playing fast and loose and, oh, well, we'll, fi- we'll figure it out um, and, and uh, you know, the magic bullet will come along and solve our problems. I think we need to be a little smarter uh, and a little more proactive in these things. And, and frankly, that's, that is what this lawsuit is about. Um, the Endangered Species Act and NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, both require uh, quite a bit of, of solid science uh, in order for a, a state or an entity to obtain an incidental take permit to incidentally take a listed species. Um, and what we've seen, we, we have the majority of the administrative record for this process which started back really in, I'm going to say 2004 or 2005. Um, we see U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service initially uh, doing a very good job of uh, holding the state to the high standards that are required to obtain an incidental permit, incidental take permit. And suddenly in 2013, we see this huge rush to push the permit through with uh, not only disregarding, uh, we actually have letters from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to the state of Maine saying these are the things that are required and these are the standards we're holding you to in order for you to obtain this permit, say in 2007 and 2008. And in 2013, suddenly those things are all thrown out the window. They're not held to any of those standards. Uh, it, it seems clearly uh, a political motivation. Uh, it reminds me of a, a case in Texas. It was actually a whistleblower case. Um, 25 year career employee at US Fish and Wildlife Service um, was a whistleblower because he noticed that uh, 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 under the ESA, this particular animal was listed, and yet his higher-ups decided very arbitrarily to pretty much give the entity asking for permission to essentially destroy habitat, um, asking for permission to just uh, go ahead and and do that without all the required steps. And, and I think that's pretty much what we've seen here. We've seen the state of Maine dig in, say, we 
are not going to do all these things. We've given you everything you're going to get from us, and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is essentially caving. Now, we've, we commented, my organization, the Center for Biological Diversity, Animal Welfare Institute, and other organizations commented during the public comment period. And we said, you should not be uh, allowing this type of trap. More links are going to be killed um, if you do this. Um, in one particular case that comes to mind, um, we talked about the leaning pole sets for, for killer type traps, conibear traps. And they were, the, the state of Maine said, well, you know, if we use a, a two inch or less pole and we put it at steeper than 45 degrees, lynx aren't going to be interested in climbing that. They're not going to get caught in the trap. We all commented. Uh, essentially, yes, they are. But better than that, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had done some tests in Maine on um, captive links that were down, that, that were, well, they were captive links. And we have the video of this. Uh, 16 out of 16 times, the test links climbed not just a greater than 45 degree pole, but at times a completely vertical pole less than two inches around and just grabbed the bait and went down. Well, that was completely disregarded by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, or at least those who make the decisions. Um, the state of Maine said, well, those are captive links. That was their sort of, it seems like that was their response anyway. And so the ITP went through without those requirements. Well. The ITP was issued November 14th of 2014, and it allowed for three Canada lynx to be killed over 15 years, incidentally, by trapping. Within three weeks, two of those three lynx had already been killed, and in the exact trap that we're talking about here. Leaning pole sets, greater than 45 degree angle, and uh, less than two inch pole. Now, when I hear a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, and again, the, the trapping debate obviously is, is very significant here in Canada. And that's largely um, what we focus on at the, the fur bears is this idea that you can just modify a trap a little bit and suddenly it will only work for the specific targets. Um, and I think the, the tests that you're referencing from the, uh, uh, the, the federal, um, uh, federal group is that you can't guarantee anything. Um, and it's, to me, it's, it's constantly frustrating to this idea that you can just say, well, it'll work that way. And it will, uh, it's like saying, well, if we post the speed limit at 80, uh, people won't go past 80. Uh, you know, no, it, it, that simply does, you can't just wish it to happen. Um, now one of the things that, uh, uh, really caught my attention, um, is, is the concept that, the acceptable number of loss almost um, it's it's kind of almost like a military designation that they've applied in here that there can be X number killed X numbered injured and X number caught and then released and the thing that's not brought up in that and to me uh, it would immediately be concerning is the concept of the the triple S solution uh, uh, shoot shovel and shut up um, now, this is never, of course, listed in policy anywhere, but if you spend five minutes in a room with trappers and hunters, or you spend five minutes reading through the, the trappers' forums, 
you'll see this come up. So can we at any point realistically say we can trap in this area where there is, in this case, the endangered uh, or at the very least at risk Canada lynx? Um, you know, and for us, one of the big ones is the wolverine right now, uh, which are extremely difficult to even just count. Um, so it, like, is it possible to allow trapping in these areas where we know there are endangered and at-risk animals when that mentality exists uh, despite the attempts at, at provincial or state biologists and managers to come up with sort of magic numbers of what's allowable? Well, as someone who personally has a major distaste for trapping, um, I, I, I'm probably not the best person to ask. But if I can <laughs> step back and, 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 you know, sort of look at it objectively, uh, you're right. First of all, it's extremely disingenuous of trappers or state agencies to say, oh, yeah, these traps are very selective. If I was going to give them something, I would say, all right, potentially that trap might be slightly more selective than that trap. But honestly, saying a trap is selective is more than disingenuous. Uh, you know, it, it's honestly being dishonest. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And, and, you know, the the issue of non-reporting, the shoot, shovel, shut up, or as they like to put on the blogs these days, TTT instead of SSS, uh, if you if you monitor those blogs, um, it is uh, genuinely a concern. Um, trapping culture is very closed, and honestly, if people knew what went on with trapping, uh, if every person had to go out with a trapper and actually see what happens with trapping, I'm quite sure that it wouldn't take long to to do away with trapping altogether. Um, but just strictly sticking to the Endangered Species Act and ITPs and, and NEPA policy, um, there isn't a, a specific place for review when it comes to to non-reporting. Um, we, we, looked, we looked through all this administrative record that, that we have, and we do notice that there are some very glaring inconsistencies. Um, certainly when you look at, um, if, we, if we take a leg hold trap, a number three victor leg hold trap. Now, this is a very commonly used trap. Um, and in Alaska, the injury rate uh, for cats was about 30%. The injury rate in Can in uh, I believe it was Quebec, was about 30%. And yet the state of Maine says these animals are regularly regularly uh, released unharmed or with very minor injuries. So. Um, the state of Maine says versus the statistics from Alaska and some places in Canada. Um, you can argue it's a bit colder in those places and, and maybe some of those in injuries are due to very cold temperatures, but it gets darn cold in Maine as well. And uh, I don't think all the injuries are due to cold weather. 
so, so we look again at this record and we see over and over again major inconsistencies between what available science there is and what our state actually says. And again, you have the lawsuit because of these things. Now, and, and sort of finishing up on the lawsuit, the, the logical place uh, to end our conversation today, what's next? Uh, you, you have filed the joint lawsuit in the U.S. District Court, uh, which is uh, the federal court, I believe. Um, and it's, it's targeting the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, and the wording in this article is uh, allowing Maine to issue trapping licenses for fur-bearing animals even though Maine's permitting process lacks the protections for links set out by the Endangered Species Act. Uh, what's next? What can people be doing? I, I mean, we've got a lot of listeners in Canada, but we also have many in the United States and even in Europe. What can folks be doing to try and support you and the, the coalition in this lawsuit moving forward? Well, my organization is a state organization, and we, we have state of Maine members. We have about 1,300 plus members. Um, we're a small organization. We're all volunteer. We do the best we can with what we have. Uh, the Center for Biological Diversity and the Animal Welfare Institute are great organizations. They're at the front lines of all this stuff, and they're at the front lines across the U.S. and in Canada. And I really recommend that people support those organizations, both Center for Biological Diversity and the Animal Welfare Institute. Um, because this wouldn't be happening if it weren't for for the partnership we have with them. And uh, it, we don't know exactly when we're going to have our first court date. We're not sure whether where they're going to assign us even in Maine. We suspect probably Bangor, and likely we will get um, a fairly conservative judge, and that that uh, does worry us. But considering the the glaring issues with uh, the ITP application and what we've seen in the record, we, we feel we feel good about our, our chances uh, for prevailing here. But uh, I would I would really strongly uh, encourage people to support both uh, Center for Biological Diversity and the Animal Welfare Institute. That's the first and foremost thing uh, at this point that we can do. To learn more, visit wildlifealliancemaine.org. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank our guests, as well as Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. <laughs>